If one of the hardest things to figure out these days is what to watch next, first of all, congrats. Second of all, you should check out HBO Max. Discover something new to watch on HBO Max like Lovecraft Country, the new HBO series from Jordan Peele, Misha Green, and J.J. Abrams that's got everyone buzzing. Plus, HBO Max is the only place you'll find new binge-worthy Max originals like Selena Gomez's new cooking show. You heard that right. Selena Gomez's Learning to Cook, from some of the world's best chefs, no less. Find your next favorite all in one place on HBO Max. Start streaming today. Download the app or visit hbomax.com to start your free trial. This episode is brought to you by U.S. Cellular. Let's talk about your cell phone carrier. When you think about your plan, does what you're getting feel fair? When it comes to staying connected, don't settle. When you switch to U.S. Cellular, not only do you upgrade to fair, you're also joining a reliable network you can trust to have your back. No hidden requirements, no activation fees. Now that's fair. Learn more at uscellular.com. Hi, I'm Kara Swisher, editor-at-large of Recode. You may know me as the person secretly running Elon Musk's Twitter account, but in my spare time, I'm just a reporter, and you're listening to Recode Decode, a podcast about power change and the people you need to know around the tech industry. We're part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. Today in the red chair is Robert Jackson, a commissioner on the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission. He was appointed by President Trump in 2018 in January to fill a slot, and he was most recently a professor of law at NYU. And one of the big tech issues that he's had to contend with is dual-class stock, which gives founders the ability to insulate themselves even when their company goes public. We'll talk about that and the state of tech IPOs and much more. Commissioner Jackson, welcome to Recode Decode. Thanks so much for having me, Kara. So uh, let's set the state of where you came from and how you're here, because your commission runs out in June. Is that correct? Uh, That's right. This past June. So you took the place of someone. That's right. All right. Explain so people don't understand how commissioners are. We just had the FEC uh, chairwoman... Ellen Weintraub in, and she explained how it works. I'm trying to get people a a sense of how this works. There are how many commissioners in total? Five. Five, absolutely. And there's a chairman. That's right. All right. And today it's an independent chairman right now. Is that correct? That's right. Appointed by the president, but independent. Right. And then there's two Republicans and two Democrats. That's right. But there can't be more than three of any party. Is that correct? That's correct. There can't be any more than three commissioners of a single party. Okay. And it's typically the the chairman is independent. Is that? No, that's not the case necessarily. Well, it depends on the chairman. Right. Um, uh, historically, they've become political independents, but mm-hmm. they often have had a political history or, or set of views. All right. Explain how you got to the commission. So it's funny. My background, I'm a Politically, I'm an independent, Um, and I was selected for this role Mm -hmm. by Senator Schumer, Mm -hmm. um, who recommended me to the the White House. I'd previously been a law professor, Mm -hmm. um, and I actually had written about corporate— At NYU. That's right, and before that at Columbia. Mm -hmm. Um, And I'd written about corporate governance for a long time and wasn't at all on my agenda Mm -hmm. to be an SEC commissioner. Before that, I'd been a corporate lawyer, an investment banker, Mm -hmm. and uh, I actually had just been writing about the SEC because I saw things that surprised me in terms of— market failures and the way the market wasn't really working. Right. So um, when I got the call asking if I'd be interested, I mean, look, my view has always been it's an honor to serve your country. Um, right. And I thought it would be a fun job to pursue. Um, but this was not something I had on my radar. Right. You were teaching. What were you teaching at, at NYU and Columbia? Corporate law and corporate finance. All right. It's funny. My, my course at Columbia, I have a course called investment banking mm-hmm. where I try to teach lawyers how to think like finance professionals. Right. Because one of the things that shocked me, I mean, I started out at Bear Stearns before I went to law school. It shocked me how little lawyers knew about the way bankers thought about their job. Mm -hmm. So something I tried to do was 
let law students know that they could, um, that if they wanted to be good servants to their clients, they had to learn how they thought. Mm-hmm. And that was what that course was about. All right. And so you you came in here in a midterm, in, a, in taking someone else's slot mm-hmm. who had left. And you got through the Senate. Yes. Right now, your term runs out and there's nobody in line yet or it can't pass the Senate or what is the— or you could be renewed for another few years, correct? I could, uh, or the the Senate right now, I think, is working on finding my successor. Right. Uh, and then they'll make a recommendation to the White House. We'll send it over to the Senate. And I'm, I'm hopeful that they'll um, that they'll get somebody through soon. But you had a point in the SEC, just like with the FEC, where there weren't enough commissioners, correct? At the most in the moment, in the two key roles in government, which usually are nonpartisan. That's right. So my colleague, Kara Stein, who uh, preceded me, ran out of time last January. Uh, It took a little while to get her replaced. And in that six-month time, my colleagues at the SEC passed a number of rules, um, Mm -hmm. and I was the sole dissenter from those rules. Right. Uh, Rules having to do with accounting oversight, rules having to do with protecting investors uh, from brokers who engage in predatory practices. Mm -hmm. And those were votes that I lost three to one. All right. Talk a little bit about those, because it's, it's again, these are supposedly nonpartisan. Nothing's nonpartisan anymore. But the FEC and the Senate are supposed to work, SEC are supposed to work this way. Talk about where we are right now. Now you have a full SEC Mm -hmm. and you guys are wrangling over what issues? Uh, So just last week. Just last week, yeah. We had a big open meeting on a subject near and dear to my heart, which Mm -hmm. is the power of shareholders Mm -hmm. to hold CEOs to account. Which is typically activist shareholders is what it got into, but it's general shareholders. That's right, but both. I Mm -hmm. think this covers both. So my colleagues made two rule changes I just couldn't agree with. Mm -hmm. The first is there are certain firms called proxy advisors Mm -hmm. who tell shareholders how to vote their shares. Right. They're well-known. They're famous. There are some famous ones that do that. Proxy um, uh, proxy advisors have been around for a long time. Mm -hmm. And the the, the sort of big CEO organizations, this is their number one enemy. Mm -hmm. They hate proxy advisors because they sometimes have the temerity to recommend shareholders vote against the CEO. Right. So my colleagues passed a series of changes that basically would tax any proxy advisor that gives advice against the CEO's interest. Because if you do give advice that's against management, Mm -hmm. you have to go through a series of hoops that my colleagues are proposing to impose. Mm -hmm. Um, And I couldn't join that because I don't know why— Talk about those. Talk about them. This is a smart audience. So explain what they would— So people who have been involved in, say, the Yahoo fight, there's lots Mm -hmm. of proxy fights, Dan Loeb and the Yahoo fights, but there's a lot of them in tech. There's not as many as there are in other places, but there's been quite a few. And what uh, happens—there was one at Microsoft. There was a bunch of proxy advisors when certain— Proposal up, they just they tell a vast amount of shareholders, most of whom aren't paying attention really, what way to vote. And they put a, they do a lot of investigation. They have they they tend to go with something. They don't typically vote against the CEO. They tend to like give people just decent independent advice. That's the way it's supposed to set up. That's the idea. Mm-hmm. And what my colleagues would require now is proxy advisors have to check mm-hmm. with the management of the company before they give investors advice about how to vote. And then. And then if the management disagrees, the proxy advisor has to include management's own opinion mm-hmm. in their own report. Doesn't management already have the right to do that? To, to make In those proxy things, they, they will disagree. But they can disagree and they right. can do it publicly. Right. But now what they get is a first look. Mm-hmm. So they can prepare themselves for the right. arguments that the proxy advisor is going to make. All right. And the reason for doing these is to strengthen the role of the CEO or rank, think of management, in entrenched management. Well, so Kara, put yourself in this situation. Mm-hmm. You're a proxy advisor. You have to choose to recommend against or for the CEO. If you recommend for the CEO, nothing happens. Recommend against the CEO, you got to check with him first. You got to talk to his lawyers. 
you got to let include all his objections makes it a lot easier to just recommend with the CEO. Right. Which will be the result from these rules, I think. Right. All right. So that was one. And that sort of hinders activist shareholders. And there's lots of them. What it's fighting against, if you were on that side, is that there's a lot of activist shareholders that come in and drive CEOs crazy. Mm-hmm. Which yeah. are, to me, good, as far as I can tell. Not just to you. So for about 30 years, the academic literature has suggested that activists add value because they hold management's feet to the fire. Mm-hmm. And it's not like we have too much CEO accountability in corporate America today. Right. So they provide a, a valuable service. The second set of rule changes that my colleagues would impose would take proposals off the ballot that don't get a certain amount of shareholder votes right. and support. So it used to be a, a smaller number, what, 3% or 2% or over the over a, a number of years, That's correct? right. If you didn't get 3% or 6% after two years, they would take your proposal off the ballot. Right. Now, if you don't hit 25% by the third year, right. you're gone. Which is, incre- I mean, you can't put that proposal on the ballot. That's right. Could the same proposal be put on by someone else? Uh, it depends. Uh, mm-hmm. The rule has a definition about whether it's substantially similar, but the mm-hmm. short answer is no. Right. So here's the problem with this. It would be one thing if we were just targeting proposals that mm-hmm. we could see in the data were annoying or value-destroying. Right. There's right. an argument for that. Yes, I've been to many meetings where that happens. Exactly. I think you probably heard that before. Ellen Y. Davis, I remember. <laughs> you remember her? She was I do. Although very useful in a lot of ways because the discussion started. Some of it was gadfly. Some of it was useful. Yeah. Say. So if you're the SEC, the way to go about this is to separate the proposals into what's useful and what's not. And then develop a rule that addresses what's not. Hmm. Instead, what we did was we just raised them across the board. So in my dissent, I point out that important things like proxy access that would let investors run their own proxy mm-hmm. fight or um, share retention plans that make the CEO keep skin in the game, mm-hmm. those would get bounced right. by this proposal. And I don't know why anybody would want to bounce those unless what you're trying to do is help CEOs. Right, right, which is the point. So talk about that. The, the rise of the gadfly, is, especially in the Internet age, and and these had, like, the Dan Loeb's of the world and the others, has become— uh, they have new tools to drive CEOs crazy. They typically make a side deal off to the side. That, that's what usually happens mm-hmm. in my experience. But their role has changed, the idea of, of an activist shareholder. I mean, they had a terrible reputation for a while and then a better one and then again a terrible one. Um, can you talk a little bit about that? Because I think increasingly they're going to be attacking tech companies, I think. Uh, I, th- I think that's absolutely right. Mm-hmm. And we can. Uh, there's a, the reason they don't has a little bit to do with the dual-class share structure many tech right, companies Right, which have. we'll get to in a second. Yeah, but I think you're right. Um, look, activists can play a socially constructive role, mm-hmm. but they're like anybody else. They have costs. Mm-hmm. Their goal is to make money. And they're going to do what they can to maximize the money they can make. If that means improving the firm, that's what they'll do. If there's another way in and out of the company that's shorter term, they'll do that too. Mm-hmm. What's so frustrating for me is we should be thinking about things that encourage activists to add value. Let me give you an example. Okay. If you're worried about short-termism act- and activists, mm-hmm. we should have rules that encourage activists to hold their shares for longer periods of time. Mm-hmm. That make it a little harder to get a quick bump out of the stock price and exit your position. But our rules don't do In that, that case, to so people who don't know, you make trouble, you call a reporter, you find something out. Sometimes it's right. Sometimes it just creates it. In this environment, social media environment, it can get quicker traction rather quickly. Absolutely. And so there are real problems mm-hmm. with activists who are sort of talking their book publicly mm-hmm. and then, you know, taking a financial position that's not disclosed. I'm happy to engage with those problems. Mm-hmm. But what these rule changes would do is just tilt the playing field 
away from activists and towards CEOs. Mm -hmm. And I don't know why that'd be a good thing. And I'll tell you something else that's frustrating about it. I feel like there's a clear path forward that would really address the problem, Mm -hmm. like with a scalpel. But instead, we kind of just raise them across the board, sledgehammer style. Yeah. Um, And unfortunately, that's why I couldn't join my colleagues with these rules. So why why is that mentality now there? It's 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 a pro-business mentality right now throughout government. Uh, I think that's fair. But I have to tell you, this one is strange to me because pro-business, what didn't always mean Mm pro-CEO. You know, like the guys I worked with on Wall Street were not pro-CEO. They were pro-investor, pro-value. They liked activists Mm because activists tend to add value. Mm -hmm. Um, Something's happened here where we've moved away from whatever pro-business used to be to just Mm pro-management. And I think that's a big mistake. We'll talk about that a little bit because I I do want to get to the the, the dual-class shareholders. It it drives me nuts, the dual-class shareholders. But talk a little bit about that concept of of pro-management versus pro-CEO. Sure. So one thing that frustrates— company Right. You know, I've been studying this for a long time. This is—everyone treats it as brand new. This is an old debate. started in the 1980s between a guy I used to work for, Marty Lipton, Mm -hmm. and hedge funds. The debate there was what's the right balance between management who want to manage the company for the long term and hedge funds who want to intervene and make a short-term profit. We were debating that in the 90s and the early 2000s, and it was thought to be a balance— Investors add value, so do managers. We're going to balance between these two. What's happened lately is that the view of my colleagues tends to be, let's just side with managers in that debate. And I'll be honest with you, my own view, this is something I advocate a lot about. One reason why is that CEOs are very, very powerful in terms of their ability to send a message in Washington. Mm -hmm. And the irony of that is that the organizations they use to do that are funded by shareholder money. Mm -hmm. The Chamber of Commerce, the Business Roundtable, their money comes from public company investors Mm -hmm. and is now being used to advocate to limit the power of public company investors. And their argument, if you were making it for them as a legal person? So they have a good argument. Mm -hmm. Their best argument is management left alone tends to add value. And they have a point. Mm. I'm not going to say that every CEO should be subject to a shareholder proposal. Of course not. The question is, should we have a level playing field between investors and the CEO, or do we want to tilt it in a way? Mm -hmm. Because we think in general CEOs are good. And that's not my view. My view is CEOs are humans, not angels, Mm -hmm. and they'll pursue the interests that they're given. If you give them too much room to build empires— to spend money in a way that doesn't make sense, Mm -hmm. to not disclose what they're doing to investors, that's exactly what they'll do. And that's why I'm worried. Yeah. So, and so, but this is in place now. So this is now. Well, no, it's been proposed. Proposed, right. So I said in my dissent, I said, look, the best news today is that it's a proposal. So people want to come forward and tell us what's wrong with this or how to calibrate it. That now is the time. Mm -hmm. Um, And who knows how long it'll take before it goes final. But um, I've said to every investor out there, now is the time to come in and share your view with the SEC. So what could happen to change that? Well, first of all, you're talking about it. Yeah, yeah, I hope so. Yeah, Yeah. I hope so. Mm -hmm. Also, the comment file, you know, we're required by law to review the comments that we get to respond to them. Um, And I'd like to think that if investors come forward trillions of dollars. Yeah, I noticed a lot of the a lot of the big investment firms were not happy about this. Yeah. And how could they be? Right. I mean, how could you be for a rule that limits investors' ability to check CEOs? Um, I don't know how a big investor can be for that. Yeah, one of the New York uh, public pension funds was particularly colorful in their <laughs> criticism of it. <laughs> and not the Council of Institutional Investors came mm-hmm. forward. I mean, a number of folks are really frustrated. Mm-hmm. So the key now is to push them forward because they're going to, uh, to the degree that they finalize a rule like what we proposed, I'm really worried that balance of power will be tipped for a long time. All right, we're going to talk about balance of power when we get back because there isn't any in tech. 
We're here with Robert Jackson. He's a commissioner uh, for the SEC. We're going to take a quick break now. We'll be back after this. Searching for what to stream next? HBO Max is where all of HBO meets the greatest collection of movies, shows, and Max originals for everyone in the family. Discover something fresh to watch with new HBO series like Lovecraft Country from Jordan Peele, Misha Green, and J.J. Abrams, or The Undoing, starring Nicole Kidman and Hugh Grant. You can also jump into a new Max original like Selena Gomez's new cooking show, Selena and Chef, or The Flight Attendant, a dark new comedic thriller starring Kaylee Cuoco. Ridley Scott's even producing a new series called Raised by Wolves. Whether you want to rewatch classic favorites or finally get into that show your friends have recommended a thousand times, HBO Max has something for everyone. Start streaming today and find your next favorite. Download the app or visit hbomax.com to start your free trial. If you're an early adopter, you get that your devices and your connections need to be fast and help make your life better. But you might be forgetting one thing. Tech should be fair, too. Fairness isn't a new idea, but it is to wireless. That's where U.S. Cellular comes in. At U.S. Cellular, people come first. And that means a fast, reliable connection with no hidden requirements and no activation fees. They'll even pay you back for unused data. When you upgrade to U.S. Cellular, you upgrade to FAIR. Learn more at uscellular.com. We're here with Robert Jackson. He's a commissioner of the SEC. It's a five-member board, uh, two, typically two Democrats, two Republicans, and an independent chair most of the time. Um, it's changed a little bit, but it's moving decidedly pro-business much more. And I think a lot of people have sort of slagged on the SEC for a long time for what they did and they do and don't do. But one of the things uh, that recently uh, got a lot of attention, obviously, well, a couple of things, Elon Musk saying things, uh, which they tang- he tangled with the SEC. There's a whole bunch of different things in tech, but the biggest one I think was WeWork and the um, what happened there with their S1. Um, and in the middle of it, besides a number of egregious things in that S1, was the control by the CEO. Um, and the control not just for now, but for forever, essentially. Um, in that particular S1, they were anticipating that Adam Newman's grandchildren would run the firm. And that has happened. Obviously, Rupert Murdoch has kids. And, and so but that's not, it's not some, nothing new, but it's through this dual class structure uh, that's been in place that tech has used pretty much uniformly, or, except for a few exceptions around. So talk a little bit about this, uh, Commissioner Jackson, where we are with dual class stock. This has been a real focus for me because one of the things I found when I dug into the data on this, dual-class stock has a justification, which is that a visionary founder needs time to make their vision real. And we just talked about how activists and others can really put pressure uh, Mm -hmm. on a a short-term pressure on a CEO. So there's some value to dual-class. The question is, how long should it be before the CEO is held accountable? Mm -hmm. And I made an argument in a speech last year where I said, not forever. Right. You see, a lot of the dual-class structures we have now, as you point out, not only gives the current founder control, but their kids and their kids' kids. This kind of perpetual dual-class stock, I'll tell you, troubles me for two reasons. First of all, the data show that the value of dual-class goes away after a short period of time. Mm-hmm. So it's valuable in the first five, seven, ten years. And this is because, let's make this argument, because they get they don't have to worry about short-term interests. Mm-hmm. They can do what they want. Mm-hmm. Um, they don't have to worry about shareholder Problem. It's the same. It's the same like lack of accountability that they don't have to do. That's the opposite of it. But it's the ability to not worry about as they grow a company. Say if you were, uh, Facebook has one, Google has one, so that they can do pursue things and that help the company 
versus, and it's typically a new company. Exactly right. And the, uh, I think the data show that that value tends to go away after a while. Why? Because the company's more mature. Mm-hmm. They're no longer innovating in the same kind of way. Mm-hmm. So they don't need that kind of room. And now the costs of it, which is that the CEO can do whatever she wants, now those costs— hey, beca- it's always hate. Hey, but go ahead. <laughs> sure. I like that you're using it. What, what is it? Who has a dual-class company that's a woman right now? Yeah, right. Exactly. <laughs> I can't, not in tech there's one that I can, maybe there is, someone can write me, but I don't think there is. You're not wrong. Mm -hmm. Uh, A lot of the examples we're both thinking of, it turns out, are are men. So for me, um, look, then the costs of that become real, which are that there's no accountability. Mm -hmm. So it bothers me in the data, but it bothers me for another reason. We're talking about the biggest companies that have the most influence on the American people. Yes. And they um, can hand down control, power of those companies generation to generation. Now, we have a word for that. It's royalty. Mm -hmm. And I thought we had a war about that 300 years ago, and the good guys won. Increased to the degree we're letting dual class continue to perpetuate over time, generation to generation, we're creating a class of royalty that controls our national dialogue. Right. I always say this. One of the things I think people don't understand the word dual class sometimes. I mean, they're not stupid, but it's not an easy concept. But I always say you cannot fire Mark Zuckerberg. He's unfireable by the board. There's no power. The board has no power. He has all the power. And people are like, what? Like, what? What do you mean he can't? Everyone can be fired. I'm like, he can't actually be fired. I'm not sure what he could do. I mean, Donald Trump can get fired faster than than, uh, one of these CEOs. I agree. I absolutely agree. Explain dual class for people who don't understand it. So how does the mechanism go into place? So when the company comes public, they've Mm -hmm. got two classes of shares. One, the managers get. Each share gets 10 votes, Mm -hmm. 100 votes. Mm -hmm. The rest, the common investors get, public investors get. And they get one vote. And the math works out such that you can't win an election against the people with the higher votes. In anything. For anything. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, what's so, again, for a few years, does that make sense? Maybe in some cases. But not only can you not fire Mark Zuckerberg, you can't fire his kids Mm -hmm. or his kids' kids. And a lot of people who are for this, here's their best argument, Kara. They say, look, when the company comes public, investors know the deal. Right. They know that this is the story. But and they, they can, want the stock. But go ahead, yeah. yeah. And they want the stock, exactly. Right. My answer to that is, how are you supposed to price forever? Like, I don't know how old, Mark Zuckerberg, to take an example, I don't know how old his kids are, but how are investors supposed to know if they make a good CEO? Mm-hmm. The, the idea that you can price that at the IPO stage strikes me as fanciful. Mm-hmm. And I got to tell you, I've been, I gave this speech over a year ago. I haven't heard a good defense for perpetual mm-hmm. dual-class stock. Dual-class more generally, we can talk about that. All right, talk about that more generally. Look, more generally, do I understand why a newly public founder wants five years to try and make their vision a reality before they're subject to a vote? I do. And the data provides some support for that. So talk about that data. So um, I released a study last year where I showed that in the first five to seven years after a public offering, companies with dual class tend to outperform uh, the rest of the market. Mm -hmm. And the reason why makes sense to me. If you're a young company that's still making big innovations— And big choices. Exactly. Like, I'll give you an example. To me, the most— the best argument for this kind of thing is Google when they pursued Android. Right. Actually, the CEOs of uh, uh, the management of Google put out a, a securities filing where they said dual class allowed us to do this. It took years to come up with the platform, to explain it to developers. To pay for it. To pay for it, exactly. And we needed time. And I get that. The question is how much time? 
And the argument for forever is very weak. So five to seven years. Talking about the, the how that why is it five to seven years is they stop being innovative, which is precisely what happens, and then they start minting money essentially. Well, right. Plus the co- I think they still innovate, but the costs of dual class mm-hmm. outweigh those benefits because now you have costs that you can't hold the CEO accountable, mm-hmm. and investors see that and price it into the stock accordingly. Mm-hmm. And talking about the idea of why it's important to hold, uh, what happens in, in Silicon Valley at least, and it, it's it, it's because these are founders. I, I always think about that a lot. Most CEOs are professional CEOs. They didn't found the company. The founder died a long time ago, mm-hmm. and there's some plaque somewhere. But in this case, they are—they're almost religious in the way they run these companies. You know, I always think of them as religious figures, and they are treated that way. They're treated like gods. They're treated like special characters, and it's, it's like Thomas Edison would be treated or anybody else. They have sort of a founder uh, sheen around them, um, and that they can say they can do no wrong, and everything they say is correct. And they don't want to be held account because of that, because they took this massive risk and they created this amazing thing. And so people tend to celebrate them, especially in Silicon Valley. I think that's right. And the problem I see is that right now nobody is in the business of telling founders no. Mm-hmm. And um, when well, that happens— I, I am, but I, it's a small <laughs> business. It doesn't make any money. <laughs> Well, look, it's not an easy thing to do. Yeah. Uh, you know, look, I, I, I was— Oh, it's easy, but go ahead. <laughs> Keep going. I was a corporate lawyer. It's not an easy board meeting. I've been Ooh. there. To say to a CEO, I understand this is what you want to do, but you shouldn't, and here's why. Mm-hmm. But we need more institutions prepared to do that. And, Karen, I'll tell you, when I was on Wall Street, the stock exchanges played a significant role in corporate governance. Mm-hmm. They required director independence, et cetera. But since I left the street, they went private. Mm-hmm. They are now— Private profit-making entities, right. and it turns out telling CEOs no is not that profitable. No, because they want new, they want all kinds of new business, essentially of all different kinds, whether it's a follow-on fundings or public offerings or different things like that. That's right. So the stock exchanges have exited the business mm-hmm. of corporate accountability. All right. So when you have the dual class structure, I want to get into WeWork, if you can talk about it a little bit, but what happened there from your perspective? Because, you know, you did have this situation of a, of a godlike CEO. I call him Weegis. Talk a little bit about that, con- what, what happened there. So um, as a commissioner, I don't want to talk about mm-hmm. uh, any particular case too much, but he- here's what I'll, I'll say. It got a huge reaction. That's what was fascinating. It is fascinating. Mm-hmm. And I think what's happening is the tech uh, industry is on a collision course with 30-, 40-year-old corporate governance debates. Mm-hmm. And I think WeWork is um, one example. Mm-hmm. Maybe the first major example. Yeah. So of, the firewall is what Scott Galloway calls it. Then. Yeah, where the rubbers finally met the road, mm-hmm. where the market has had enough with governance structures that don't make sense, with registration statements that don't make sense, mm-hmm. um, and has finally begun to push back. Now, here's my question for you, Kara. Sure. Why did it take that? Why wasn't there a stock exchange standard or a lawyer or an advisor or a board member mm-hmm. saying to that CEO, Right. Look, you have perpetual control throughout your grandchildren. You have limited accountability. The company's financial—I mean, why wasn't that conversation had before? Well, who would have had that? It's interesting because I just interviewed Brian Chesky of Airbnb. They're going to go public. They've mm-hmm. announced it. He's a much more responsible figure compared to a lot of Wall Street. And one of, two of the things he said I thought were interesting is, one— all those disclosures, I'm not going to have disclosures. I'm going to fix that problem before we get there or else we're not going public, like the, the things that you would disclose. So the, the, the disclosures, I think, shocked people, like a lot of the stuff. Um, the second thing he said is, I don't know what meeting they were in. When I just was meeting with bankers, I'm like, what are you telling me that isn't true about myself? What am I doing wrong? And what, why won't you tell me? Like, why won't you tell me about what's going on? And I said, we should just do direct listing. But even then, you don't have time for self-reflection. You have nobody— 
in the room telling you your problems, essentially. You seem like a, a negative force. And I think anytime you say anything negative to tech people, they feel victimized mm-hmm. or they feel like, we're brilliant. What are you at questioning us? And so it's what's really interesting is what happens, one, in the room with the bankers who, well, that's obvious. They want to get paid, right? And they're, they'll do anything. What happens with the lawyers? They want to get paid. They're a little more cranky, I suspect. And then the general public doesn't see it until it came out. And then when everyone saw it, they're like, what? Like, especially because there was so much crazy stuff in that particular one. Yeah. Um, That was particularly laughable. So, Carol, let's just be clear. Everybody wants to get paid. Mm -hmm. And as a rule in my job, I try not to get mad at people for following their financial incentives. Sure. Bankers want the mandate. They'll tell you what you need. Look, I've been that guy. Mm -hmm. They'll tell you what you need to hear to get the mandate. Mm -hmm. So I don't think if we leave corporate accountability up to investment bankers, Mm -hmm. I think we're going to regret it. So put that to one side. Right. You ask about the lawyers. The lawyers in Silicon Valley— there has been virtually no leadership mm-hmm. from those firms about no. what the right thing to do here like is. Wilson Sonsini. Exactly. And the, and the reason is straightforward. It's hard even to blame them. They are talking their book. They want to make money. They, also, I, they I, socialize as a small environment, too. It's, a, it's hard to be difficult in those environments. Absolutely. And so, you know, look, when I made my sort of pitch on dual class, BlackRock and the Council of Institutional Investors petitioned the stock exchanges to develop a limit. Mm-hmm. And that firm, those firms came out against it. Mm-hmm. because they'd much rather be able to tell their clients they can do whatever they'd like. Mm-hmm. And I think we're going to live to regret this because we work as one example of how the market is not comfortable with intergenerational control of widely important public companies. It wasn't just that. It was also decision-making in terms of what to buy and what not to buy. It, was, mm-hmm. it looked like – one of the things it gets to is the entity that is actually supposed to do its job is the board is the actual board, which is supposed to say, you want to buy a SurfWave company? No, we're not buying a SurfWave company. No, mm-mm, no, very nice. Buy it yourself with your own cash if you like to surf so much. Or if they hear rumblings, which they never do, of problems, you know, behavioral problems or anything else like an Uber or whatever, they step in. But they tend not to step in anymore. They tend to be, one, because the people appoint them and they're in, they're in their debt, or two, they have no power because the boards. I mean, let, let me just get the. It might correct the board of Facebook has no power. Well, to let's speak of. Let's just be clear. Okay, they're direct. They're public company directors. They're fiduciaries to the shareholders. Yes, but the person who elects them by majority hammerlock control is the CEO they oversee. Mm-hmm. So, just to be clear, they do have some authority, but it's limited by the fact that the person who's in who they're supposed to be overseeing chooses them. Right. What if, say, Scott and I talk about this, what if, say, one or two, they tend to leave quietly in the middle of the night and say nothing, the ones that have left, who, who I, from what I understand, are more disputatious and disagreeable with the CEO. They'd have to say, we're going to fire you, and then the CEO fires them, right? That could have happened in the case of Adam Newman, for example. So just because I don't know whether yeah. that happened in that particular case? No, it didn't, but, but in it theory, could have. It, exactly. And in here. theory, when people have dual class, they can do what? If this, the board suddenly gets a conscience and says, this is the CEO is not acceptable. And it's hard to get to that. A firing is hard to get to. That's right. But there's going to be a meeting next year right. where you have to be reelected. Right. And I don't like your chances. Right. And here's the thing, none of this ever happens because everybody understands before the fact that it right. could, mm-hmm. and they act accordingly. But what, have you ever seen an instance where a board says, we're going to walk, like, they could make a public stink. They could call me and say, Kara, you know, uh, we're, we have told him he has to step down, and he won't, and he's firing us. And that director will never serve on a public company board again mm-hmm. and knows it. Mm-hmm. So what we're really asking people are to be angels, not men. Mm-hmm. 
And it's just an unrealistic thing to ask them. These are people who are very senior, who think of themselves as collegial, thoughtful, counsel, Mm -hmm. that they can work it out. Right. And the idea that they would do something like that, it's just it's it's not something that that's realistic. But they don't have that that weapon in their arsenal. That's my feeling. It should just be there. Like the gun should be on the table. Look, I think those for board, a board. Not only that, but you know, these boards, these are t- tend to be senior people who want to do the right thing. Mm-hmm. They also don't have a lot of resources. Right. They don't have their own analytical team. Mm-hmm. They don't have the ability to take a CEO's plan and get and, and say, well, look, do those assumptions make sense? Mm-hmm. Does that purchase make sense? It's right. very they hard. to show up for a board meeting in like Sun Valley or somewhere yeah. where the heck it is. And they dial in by phone mm-hmm. and they say yes. And look, I've been in those meetings. It's a, it's a difficult um, thing for a director to do. But what one thing we're doing right now in corporate America is we're asking a lot of those boards and we're not giving them a lot of tools to do mm-hmm. that work. And that's going to end badly. Right. And we can yell at the boards all day long. But until we give them the tools to do that work, we shouldn't expect a different result. So each board member having analytical, they won't do it. They won't, they won't, they won't take the time. But just so you know, that was proposed 30 years ago right. in a very famous article um, by one of my colleagues. Um, and that's an idea. Where is that idea in the corporate governance debate right now? All right. We're talking with Robert Jackson. He's a commissioner of the SEC. I want to talk about solutions to that, to what's going to, where it's going to go, dual class, etc., and some other things around IPOs, sort of the changes as we move forward. Support for this podcast comes from State Farm. With surprisingly great rates, State Farm is the real deal when it comes to home and car insurance. State Farm agents are always ready to help you personalize your insurance plan so you can create a policy that fits your needs. You can manage your coverage, pay your bill, or even file a claim right from your phone with the State Farm mobile app. And you can always call one of the State Farm agents in neighborhoods across the country. Get a great rate without sacrificing great service. When you want the real deal, like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. We're here with Robert Jackson, the commissioner of the SEC. So we were talking about dual class structure and what happens to it. What, is there any way it would change? Is there a limit, like five years? Is there a, you, you say five. It shows it to be ineffective after five years. It's between five and seven. Okay. So is there any attraction for any kind of proposal that would change this? So there's a petition right now filed by BlackRock and the Council of Institutional Investors before both the New York Stock Exchange and NASDAQ. Mm-hmm. The petition's over a year old. Um, what do you think's happened so far? Nothing. Nothing. Crickets. Because they have no financial incentive to do it. Mm-hmm. Why did they petition it? Why did Because they want it to happen. They really do. Mm-hmm. Look, I think that BlackRock, CII, that crew really thinks that intergenerational control of public companies is unacceptable. Mm-hmm. That's certainly what the petition says. Mm-hmm. And the idea that the exchanges would be the ones to do this, it's just not in their financial interest. Mm-hmm. Now, there are other entities that are stepping up. Okay. But they have their own problems. So, for example— there's uh, big public company stock indexes, mm-hmm. the S&P 500, the Russell 3000. They've begun to say they're not going to admit new dual-class stocks. Mm-hmm. So they're putting pressure back on right. companies. Right. But that's not such a great solution, and I'll tell you why. Because you should have them sometimes. Number one. Number two, the indexes are where ordinary families put their money because we tell them to. Mm-hmm. We say diversify. Be in the S&P 500. Let me ask you, Kara. Is it a good idea to leave out some of the highest growth companies from the ordinary right. portfolio of a family in America? Mm-hmm. Like, I don't feel like at this moment we need more of a sense that financial markets work for some people and not you. Right, that who can take the risk. So, exactly. So that's a problem, too. Mm-hmm. So frankly, what we need, uh, we need some legislation um, that will empower uh, the SEC to make rules in this area or that just set a rule. Um, and what that rule should say, in my humble view, it shouldn't prescribe. I don't think it should name five years, seven years, or if it should just say, you, the company, pick your moment for accountability. 
Maybe it's 10 years from now. Maybe it's when Mark Zuckerberg passes on. You pick the moment. The answer cannot be. The only thing you can't do is never have accountability. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a good place to start. The kids don't get it. The kids don't get it. Well, they can get it, but there has to be a shareholder vote first. Mm-hmm. Ask the investors, is this the right leader? Mm-hmm. Hey, look, maybe it turns out his kid's a genius, in which case that the shareholders want to give that guy control. That's usually not the case. Well, I don't know. <laughs> I never met him. Uh, I know, in, in general. But here's what I'll say. It should be up to the investors. If they want to continue with that system, fair enough. That's not my call. Well, wait, what about the, the, the idea that investors, like I'm thinking of News Corp as a good example or some of these newspaper companies sure. where, where that it has been the case, where kid, kids do take over. Um, I often am in discussions with some of these people and they start lecturing me about things. I'm like, didn't you get your job by being born? Mm-hmm. Like, I, I don't see how that makes any sense whatsoever. Yeah. Some of them are quite competent. Some sure. of them are quite competent and, and have, a, have a feeling of um, – uh, I'm thinking of the New York Times. They're they're yep. quite competent, and they're quite. They have a feeling of mission. If, if they're mission driven companies, should they be different? If you're a mission driven company, or I guess you, who defines that? See, I wouldn't want to be in the business of defining that. Right. What I'd say is, you know, even that family has to have a moment of accountability. Mm-hmm. I think they're competent too. Mm-hmm. But wouldn't it be better if, in answer to your question, when you said, "Hey, didn't you get your job by being born?" He could say, "Actually, no. I got my job by election of the shareholders. Mm-hmm. Now they only elected me once." Because we're mission-driven, because our family has a vision. Mm -hmm. But wouldn't it be better for them to say, I carry the stamp of approval of the millions of investors I serve? Mm -hmm. I think that'd be better for that CEO to say nothing of the company. Right, absolutely. So with the way way things are going, let's switch to—so there there won't be anything happening in this area (laughs) until I just keep writing about it. Well, look, if we leave it up to the stock exchanges Mm -hmm. who have no profit, that won't— So it has to be legislative. I think either— Is there any appetite for that? Well, actually, there have been a couple of bills introduced. Um, I'd like to think—look— Over the last year and a half, I've heard every possible defense of dual class. I have not heard anything convincing for Mm -hmm. intergenerational perpetual control of companies. Mm -hmm. I hope that some folks in the bar and elsewhere will come forward and say, you know what, this is not an unreasonable thing and provide support for it. And by the way, there's some evidence that companies are moving in that direction. So some companies coming public do have a sunset, do have a moment of accountability. Mm -hmm. Hopefully the market moves in that direction. Um, But I would be very— And some of them don't have it at all. I don't think Jeff Bezos has— he has a lot of stock, but I don't believe he has dual class. Is that correct? You know, it's funny. Jeff Bezos didn't have it. Yeah. Apple doesn't have it. There's lots of innovative yeah. companies that don't have it. Right. You don't need dual class to mm-hmm. persuade your shareholders. Right. All you need is, is the ability, a business plan that makes sense. Right. So that's another reason why I, I really hope folks are going to start to tell tell. Yeah, these. he holds on to it because like, he does have a cult of personality around him. You know, there's that. But his kids certainly don't. Yeah, but if the shareholders want to throw him out, yeah, they'd have they could they could yeah. See, I if I'm if I were Mr. Bezos, I would think that actually gives me another a deeper level of uh, legitimacy mm-hmm. because I am approved by my right. investors. Right. I don't need to be shielded from accountability. Bring it on. I have mm-hmm. a good story to tell. Mm-hmm. Do you imagine them any of the, the it would be Facebook and Google who are causing the most problems lately, which is fascinating because nobody can question them. I'd like to think that these companies and their counsel will look back on the last couple of years and think it's making the uh, story about us worse that we have no accountability. Right. Maybe we ought to change that. All right. So going into the IPO season, how do you look? How is the SEC positioned? There's going to be – there's been – it's been a mixed bag with IPOs um, Mm -hmm. in general for tech and and, and many others actually. How do you look at changes in IPOs and how they're done, direct listings and and others? Some people have used them quite effectively. Um, I'm thinking Spotify is Spotify and Slack not doing so well. Slack, I think Spotify is doing okay. Talk a little bit about the changes now because tech did sort of innovate new kinds of ways to do 
public offerings, the most recent group of people who've done that. I think that's right. I think it's exciting. Um, so j- let me just say, when I was a banker in the 90s, I did IPOs. Mm-hmm. I had a beeper. Mm-hmm. I didn't have an iPhone. Yeah, right? I carried around a pager. At the time, when we took a company public, mm-hmm. if you were raising less than a billion dollars, we charged you 7% exactly to take you public. Not six and a half, not seven and a half, seven on the nose, and we never bargained. We never negotiated that. When I got to the SEC 20 years later, I said to my economist, hey, dig into this. Tell me, what's the fee now? Because I'm, I'm sure competition, technology, mm-hmm. I have an iPhone. I'm sure it's changed. Carol, let me ask you. If I were to ask— Probably 9%. No, it's still 7. No, it is. On the nose. Mm-hmm. For 97% of IPOs last year that raised less than a billion, you pay 7% on the nose. If you're Facebook, you can negotiate it. Mm-hmm. But if you're a mid-sized company, you pay Wall Street a tax of 7% to go public. It's astonishing to me that we've never innovated around that, and that's why I think direct listings are interesting. But I want to add a little thought for you here. Mm-hmm. Direct listings work for big, well-known companies. Right. They work if you're Spotify. They work if you're a big brand that everybody knows. Mm-hmm. If you're a smaller— Or a SPAC, like what Virgin, uh, Virgin Galactic just did. Exactly. There, you know, the diligence process behind an IPO is not so necessary because everyone knows who you are. Direct listings are not a complete solution to this problem. Because what we really need to do is help the mid and small size companies. Um, I'll put it this way. If direct listings are a solution for companies that are going to raise five, seven, 10 billion, they're not really a solution. Mm -hmm. We need a solution for companies that are raising three, four, five hundred million dollars. So what is that? There's lots of ways we could Mm -hmm. go about it. Um, Expanding direct listings such that they work for companies that don't have that kind of brand name might be one way. There's a whole bunch of- How do you do that? Well, you you set up a diligence process that's more efficient, mm-hmm. um, and that requires a little less of the company and the um, and, and the exchanges can and should do things to encourage this. And here they have financial incentives to do it because, as you said earlier, they, they want, want more listings. That's right. So there are changes we can make. I just got to say, it's astonishing that everything Still the same price everything in American life has gotten cheaper since I was on Wall Street, mm-hmm. except an IPO. So where do you imagine it going? People, of course, staying non-public for a long time. That's one of the things, again, people have criticized, that these companies stay private too long. Yeah, so that's— And these valuations get out of hand. To me, that's a very interesting dynamic because in Washington right now, the discussion about that goes like this. The reason companies stay private is red tape. Going public so expensive. You know, the lawyers, the accountants, man, it's hard. I have never in my life— been in a boardroom where people say, you know, I'd love to do an IPO. But red tape. <laughs> but man, those lawyers, I mean, come on. N- th- said no one ever, uh-huh. right? This is like a good talking point for the chamber or whatever. This is, there is no evidence to support this uh, thought. Mm-hmm. My view is what really happened is in the late 90s, and there's a nice new paper showing this, mm-hmm. Kara. In the late 90s, we deregulated private markets, mm-hmm. made it real easy to raise a lot of money. Yep. And there's a lot of money. And there's a, it's very frothy out there. Mm-hmm. And that's why private markets rose. It shouldn't surprise anybody. We did the Jobs Act. People said there'll be a torrent of IPOs. Never happened. Mm-hmm. Of course it didn't, because private money's cheap and easy. Mm-hmm. When I was, and uh, not accountable. That's right. When I was a banker, you wanted to raise $500 million. To do that, you had to ring the bell. Now you, can, you had to go to the New York Stock Exchange and do an IPO. I was your mm-hmm. only way to do that. Now you can make a wrong turn on Sand Hill Road. And pick up $500 million. That's right. I always say there's not enough rat holes to shove all the money down. And because of that, there's a lot of dry powder chasing a lot of yield and uh, looking for yield. And because that's true, we can't expect public companies to be attractive. And it's got nothing to do with red tape. Mm -hmm. It's got to do with the market dynamics we set up 
that we well, need what to grapple. about the valuations being so out of sync? I was just talking again about uh, with a bunch of so the, the numbers that they have at private valuations, which can be anything. They could make eleven hundred million, whatever. They just make it up. Like at some point, someone was like, "We're worth this." I'm like, "You just made that up." They're like, "What?" I'm like, "You made it up." Like I don't. I'd love to know what went into that pie, but it was not good ingredients. But the, the numbers are quite different. Like, look, Uber. Well, they have an economic problem. They have an economic problem that, that their business isn't economically viable at this moment. Slack has had problems that, versus the private valuation to the public valuation. The public markets seem to at least be going, no, like that's not what these numbers tell us. It may be very much a promising company like an Uber or a Slack or something like that, but we're not going to pay so much for this muffler, right? We're not going to—that's which is an old uh, ad oh, in yeah. New York when you live in New York. So how do you how do you justify the differences between the public and private valuations? I, I actually that to me is why they don't want to go public. Because, yeah, well, so I think there's a lot of explanations. I happen to agree right. with that one. But here's what I'll say: It's very important and good to see the public market having some discipline, mm-hmm. and I'm delighted to see the public market pushing back on high valuations. And I'm hopeful that that's going to reverberate back into the private markets. Mm-hmm. Um, Some people think it's not going to because there's so much money that it won't. Well, but this is the problem. This is why when my colleagues say, hey, Rob, let's cut some red tape and create IPOs, mm-hmm. I'm like, as frothy as Silicon Valley money cut is right now. Cut all you want. Yeah. yeah, come on. This is not – look, my problem with that, I think the SEC and the government gets in trouble. Mm-hmm. When we tell people we're going to solve a problem, we do the thing we're gonna we're planning to do, and then we don't solve it. Mm-hmm. And I'm afraid that we're going to tell people we're going to solve this IPO thing. We're going to cut some red tape and make management happy. We're going to turn around in five years, and there's going to be no more public companies, mm-hmm. and um, people are going to be upset that we sold them a story that's not right. So, is there a good reason to stay private? What would you if you were revising a company? Absolutely. Like, why not? Why not? I mean, Kara, private markets are frothy. They're easy to negotiate. There's lots of dry powder. Sometimes uh, private markets offer something very valuable, which is they'll, the fund that's funding you will come onto your board, give you some expertise. Mm-hmm. All that stuff can be very valuable. Now, I personally think, you know, as a SEC commissioner and someone who's taken some companies public, going, there's no substitute for being a U.S. public company. Mm-hmm. Kara, I go around the world in this job, and one of the things every jurisdiction tells me is how do we make our markets look like yours? The deepest, most liquid capital markets in the world. How do we do that? So there's real value to going public in the United mm-hmm. States. But the bottom line is when we deregulated private markets, we made that so easy that we shouldn't be surprised that we have fewer companies that want to be a part of our public Right, markets. because they do have to face the music at some point. I agree with you. I think WeWork was like, wait, like we can't do this. And I think a lot of people are thinking twice about why not just stay. And what it does is it imposes lack of discipline on these companies because if they are, they don't, they stay private. They don't, I mean, I think Uber is a good example. They take too long and therefore they don't feel the scrutiny. Um, and then secondly, they don't um, – they don't. it's not their short-term decisions. Sometimes short-term decisions are good ones. Like, in, in, you know what I mean? It's sort of pilloried a lot. But at the same time, if you're actually thinking your words are going to be on the front of the New York Times, it matters what you do. And I don't think you do things less good. I just think it – you have more control on you. I'm thinking of Elon Musk and his state, although he'll do it in public, private. It doesn't matter what. Can we finish up talking about that? How, do you, how did that end for you all? You guys really wrangled back and forth uh, it, with Elon. Oh, so, um, you know, their enforcement matters are hard for me to talk about, right. okay. um, but I did make a public statement about this. You're right. We, we, we had a settlement. Uh, with with Mr. Musk that required him to share his uh, his public his social media statements um, uh, uh, with an advisor to make sure that they comply with the securities laws, and then he he 
did another one, and he didn't do that. Right. Um, we ended up settling that second case, and I, I objected to the settlement. Um, and I'll tell you why. If you make a deal with the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission signed off on by a federal judge, that needs to mean something. And you need to be held to the deal you struck. And if you're not, uh, we can, should, and in that case, we did bring a contempt uh, motion. And I would have thought that would be the appropriate result. Um, right. So it's very rare that I talk about enforcement. Mm-hmm. I mean, Karen, I got to tell you, the people in my agency, there's 4,000 hardworking people who dedicate their career mm-hmm. to this space. Um, you know, the enforcement directors, um, Steph Avakian, and Steve Peakin, they work like hell on these cases. So I, I mm-hmm. very rarely go public. But in this case, I thought someone should say to that particular CEO, hey, you cut a deal with us, you have to follow the deal. Mm-hmm. No, he doesn't. Sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'll do it again. I just don't see it. He's an unusual. There's not that many that do that kind of stuff. That was an unusual set of circumstances. Yeah. I agree with you. But it can't be the case mm-hmm. that you sign a deal with us on day one, 30 days later, change your mind and do something else. Right. We, we can't have it. Do you see that more from the tech industry? No. Just, it's just They're just founders again. I find it. It's a really interesting group of men, men with a mentality, with a certain mentality. Well, here's what I'll say, Kara, to be fair. Mm-hmm. Our rules about how you can use social media to communicate. Yeah, that's what I'm going finish up with. It's not super clear. Right. And I've actually been out there calling for an update to that. So what would you have if you were doing that? So here, social people use social media. Obviously, the president uses it. All kinds of people use it. Um, but it, when it comes to companies, it can create one real confusion. And they could also be supported. You know, I see the rise of bots attacking companies, mm-hmm. um, which I think creating false rumors, creating uh, chaos in the market. Uh, even even a small, what if someone said, oh, look, here's Bob Iger, you know, whatever, some neg- terrible negative thing, which isn't true, that gets purchased, for example. It can do enormous damage in a short time. How, do you guys have the ability to fight that going forward, seeing what's happened in the government? So, without again, without saying anything mm-hmm. about a particular case, we do have a lot of tools at our disposal, and our enforcement people are really, really fantastic. I, here's what I'd say. We should lay out the rules of the road for this. I mean, here, here's a CEO who has something he wants to say to the public. He's got a First Amendment right to speak to the public. We need to tell him or her how to do that in a way that complies with the securities laws. Now, let me just say that there's 80 years of rules here that mm-hmm. we can rely on to help develop this. And I think good lawyers basically know where the r- rules are. But it's a new world in social media. You know that. Mm-hmm. We ought to help people understand the best way to use it. If you could decide right now, what would you think are the key parts of that? So— just give an example. To the degree that someone's going to have some say something that's got to do with the material non-public information. Quarterly earnings. Or yeah. Whatever. The board should have maybe should have a role. Maybe there should be some oversight of that. Maybe there should be a review period. Maybe there should be not just the particular CEO, but the management team should be read into this so they can all understand what the implications might be. I can think of a lot of – there's a lot of options here. Mm-hmm. Um, but what's not an option is to have someone use Twitter in a way that violates the 34 Act. That's, that's something we have to be against. And I think we've actually – in that case and others, we've done a good job getting out there and making mm-hmm. clear that that's unacceptable. I think the whole point of these uh, mediums is to be immediate and not – not thoughtful. Like, I can't imagine. Let's go over this. I think in the case, I was fascinated with uh, Jack Dorsey's tweets around political ads, which obviously had an impact on the finances of the company. Small, but it still was important. But that looked like it was well thought out, those series of tweets. I thought that would not... I was thinking, would this get him into trouble? And I thought, no, this was clearly vetted and thought, was very thoughtful group of statements. And that's why, like, a lot of folks have said to me, hey, Rob, shouldn't they, shouldn't you guys just ban it? Mm Mm-hmm. No, no. First of all, 
people have a very strong First Amendment interest in this kind mm-hmm. of speech. Second of all, put that to one side. We've made a decision as a country that the solution to speech you don't like is more speech. Mm-hmm. So it's not that I want to shut this down. What I want to do is channel it mm-hmm. to valuable, thoughtful comments on the future of the company. Mm-hmm. I think if you're a public company CEO, tweeting the last thing that jumped into your mind, probably not a good idea. Um, because of the obligations that come with that office mm-hmm. uh, when you have public investors. So that's why I think we need to clarify the rules here. Yeah, I think that's not going to happen. Do you remember when Rupert Murdoch was tweeting in the middle of the night? That was good. That was fun for my project. <laughs> I think they took his phone away from him. <laughs> Give me that phone, Rupert. Look, I'm an optimist by nature. You'd have to be yeah. in my job, right? Yeah. All right, last question. What's the biggest issue facing, would you say, the IPO market right now? In this country, at least, where much of the action happens. The biggest issue is that we have very frothy, completely deregulated private capital markets with which an IPO market that was built 50 years ago cannot compete. And when I read stories about stock exchanges negotiating with CEOs to get rid of styrofoam and hear hear them so desperate for listings, Mm -hmm. I think to myself, that is not a, a way that we are going to solve the IPO problem. So how do we do that? What we do is we look at the balance mm-hmm. between the way we treat private capital markets and public capital so markets. more regulatory. Yeah, I mean, I, I think we need to look back at what we did in the 90s on the private side and look at its real implications and stop pretending like cutting red tape on the public side is going to make a difference. We mm-hmm. tried that. Um, it was never a good theory, but we have evidence on it now and it doesn't work. So some level of regulation on the private, in the, within the private market. In terms of, I think that's right, and you know we can debate what it should be and what it should look and how we would scope it. It would require legislation. I'm all for that, but to continue to pretend that we can get people out of that market and into the public market mm-hmm. with an IPO process that charges a seven percent tax, with why would you do it? Why would you do it? Um, now there are reasons we to have reward employees, and but you can do that now through the private market. Exactly. I'll say something else. I have hope for this because direct listings have developed in the way that they have. Mm-hmm. In my view, thoughtfully, carefully. No one's pretending it's a solution to everything. People, the companies that are doing it are doing it carefully. I think we might get some more movement in that direction. Mm-hmm. Um, but if we don't fundamentally rethink the private-public balance, the idea that we're going to red tape cut ourselves out of this problem is – it was always a fanciful theory and there's no evidence for it. All right. This has been great. I really appreciate this. For people who don't know a lot about stock, that was a very good primer in a very short time. I'm going to be writing about dual-class stocks and getting rid of them. I just want to get rid of them. <laughs> I would like to just be like, what the hell? But you're absolutely right. There's, I'd love to see your uh, research on this, too. Great. So I will cite it. Anyway, thank you so much, Commissioner Jackson, for coming on the show. You can follow me on Twitter, at Kara Swisher. My executive producer, Erica Anderson, is at Erica America. My producer, Eric Johnson, is at Hey Hey ESJ. Commissioner Jackson, where can people find you online? So they can find me on the SEC's website where mm. I post all my uh, all my research. Mm-hmm. And you can find me on Twitter at SEC Jackson. And you got to be careful, right? I'm not a big tweeter. Okay, good. Okay, so you keep it that way. Um, if you like this episode, we'd really appreciate it if you shared it with a friend. And make sure to check out our newest podcast, Reset. Just search for it in your podcasting app of choice or tap the link in the show notes. Thanks also to our editor, Joel Robbie. Thanks for listening to this episode of Recode Decode. I'll be back here on Monday. Tune in then. HBO Max brings all of HBO to your fingertips, plus an epic list of new Max originals. Whether you're into animation, classic movies, or binge-worthy series, HBO Max's suggested collections are curated by real humans, not robots, so you find the right thing to watch every time. With thousands of options for you and the family to choose from, it's the streaming platform of your dreams. 
HBO Max, where HBO meets so much more. Start streaming now at HBOMax.com. Hold up. 